0: work your plan yeah maybe not Uh, mike ackerman got us started with uh the series called to belong yesterday or last week mark christian called to repair bob Whitty's up with a call to work (laughs) hard work don't boo that Hard work, manual labor has been in my family's blood for many, many generations. Uh, the previous three generations before me, all the way back to my great-grandpa, have been involved in landscaping all of their life. My grandpa, my great-grandpa, my dad, all landscapers. My grandpa and his seven siblings were all either in landscaping, concrete work. One of them was a roofer, and I think they had a partridge in a pear tree. They just know how to work hard. Calloused hands. My uncle John, my favorite Uncle John has been in concrete all of his life. My dad now owns his own landscaping and stonework business. My first job was with my dad, 10 years old, $1 an hour. He just wanted me to learn the good, good work ethics. Uh, he would say things. I mean, I'd be pushing a wheelbarrow, little bitty Bobby pushing a wheelbarrow, and I'd stop for two minutes in the blazing hot sun just to get a drink, just to take a rest, and I'd hear you know, from wherever he was at, that wheelbarrow ain't going to push itself, boy boy, get to work, and i just have to get to work. I would be standing there thinking about digging instead of digging, and I'd just be leaning on the shovel there. That shovel ain't the leaning post. Get to work, boy. Uh, Call me boy all the time. Uh, there was a time where he was looking at this project he had to do, and he was thinking about the best way to approach it. I said, well, Dad, I have an idea. He goes, boy, I don't pay you to think. I pay you to work. Dig something. Just... Hard work is always in my family. I'm not kidding you, this is no lie. When my family would play Monopoly, we would fight over who would get to be the wheelbarrow piece. Like, that's the one that we all wanted to be. I was the first one, I'm the first witty to go to college. I was a disappointment to my family for going to college. Like you're gonna, you're gonna sit in a class and learn and you're gonna do what now? Like they, it just didn't, it, it, I mean, my family's very intelligent. they it just, college wasn't in their blood. I, I remember shaking hands with them at family reunions or Christmas or whatever and they would look at my hands and like, you've gone soft and pencil, pushing pencils in college now, boy. You know, like I didn't have any calluses on my hand at all. Witties work. It's just what we do. Now because this work ethic apparently has been lost on my generation with me because I went off to college and I became a preacher youth pastor uh they wanted to make sure it wasn't lost on the next generation and so when uh, my very large witty side of the family threw a baby shower for Lisa this was the gift that they gave my oldest son Josh a shovel Everybody else, diapers, formula, baby clothes, toys. No, my dad shows up, boom, shovel, right there. Actually, he would never go to a baby shower, but he bought it and sent it with my mom. And I think this, I mean, and I've got pictures at home of my kid using this shovel. It's, I mean, it's just in our blood. Plain and simple, I think every single person should have a hard manual labor job at some point in their life just to learn how to work. Digging holes, (laughs) planting trees, that kind of stuff, it just builds character. It builds fortitude within us. Uh, As a matter of fact, turn to the person next to you and tell them the worst possible job that you've ever had. What, What was your worst job, hardest working job that you ever had? All right, you guys got it? I happen to be walking after class with, uh, you guys know my friend Colt Doherty? Where's Colt at? Yeah, I was working with, I love Colt. We're walking along, and he calls me Mr. Bob, and he's like, Mr. Bob, what are you preaching on? I said, actually, I'm preaching on hard work, and I told him that line, that everybody should have a hard-working manual labor go- job, and he goes, it's amazing that you said that. He had just talked to a guy that he worked for that he was doing construction, and he's like, those were some of the best years of my life. They were the worst working years, but it just did something in him to where now he's transferred those skills of hard work, of doing manual labor, into his studies, into his preaching, into his evangelism life, just into every facet of his life, Hard work builds character. We should all do manual labor work, but right now you're sitting in college. It's still hard, isn't it? It's just a different kind of hard, isn't it? Yeah, the boos are coming back. Yeah, boo, it's hard. As a matter of fact, turn to the person next to you, and I want you just to, to describe the emotion that you're feeling thinking about the next eight weeks of work that you still have to do to finish this semester. All right. I think Christian Hay right here just summarized it all. He's the only one that I heard. You just said what? I actually want to die. He wants to die right now. Anybody there? Some of y'all are wondering where your roommate is. They've already died. Like Terry Boland killed him. Like they're gone. Yes, he did it. We know that it's hard, hard here. It's a different kind of hard. Some of you all checked out on spring break mentally two weeks ago. You're already there. You're on the beach. You're back at home. You're watching Netflix. You're doing your thing. Uh, we, know, we know how hard it is here. That's the context of, of our work here. If anybody recruited you by... I never recruit a student saying, oh, it's easy. I'll tell them that, you know, you'll, you'll meet handsome men here or women, you know, beautiful women. I'll do whatever it takes to tell you to come here, but I'll never tell you that it's easy because that would be a lie, isn't it? How many of you went to community college before you came here? Which is harder. <laughs> yep. You don't even need to answer. You're already passed out. You can barely get your hand up in the air. That's a context of you know I mean there's manual labor there's Ozark scientifically scientifically the oversimplistic definition of work is using force to move an object a distance and it's when that force and the object are moving in the same direction. Did you guys catch that? You're like uh, I don't have science class this semester. No, it's when a, it's when. Force moves an object at distance. So technically, I could take this little ball, and if I push it along, and if the force, my hand, me, and the object are moving in the same direction, that's considered work. Because there's movement, there's energy that's happening. But I could walk over to this wall and I could push on this until Jesus Christ Himself comes back for the resurrection. And I could push and I could push and I can push and that stone wall right over there will not move whatsoever. And that's not considered work. Even though I'm sweating and sweating. We all know what it's like to work really hard and not see the fruit of our labor. Can I get an amen? Are you there? It's tough sometimes. My little boy Josh, when he was a little guy and Caleb was born, that was his worst nightmare. He thought he wanted a little brother, but then it was Caleb, and, and he's just full of energy. Josh, super chill, laid back. He didn't like rough house with his cars, but instead he would take all of his cars and all of his little, you know, army guys and stuff that he would play with, and he would just line them up so neatly. He, he, OCD, y- y'all with me? Like, just wanted them lined up. And Caleb would just come toddling in and just destroy all of that hard work. He had worked for all of two minutes setting up those cars. But to him, it was his entire life work, all perfectly matched out there. And the one diaper just comes in and just destroys his hard work there. And he just hated that. K-Dub, stop! I could still hear it all the time in my head. You know what it's like when you finally work up the nerves. Guys, you know what it's like? You finally, in high school, junior high, the snowball dance or whatever, you worked up the nerve to ask that girl to the dance. And you go in and you're like, um, uh, well, do, if you're not going to, well, are you going to, uh, to dance, me, you? Like you can't get the words out. You're captivated by her beauty. And then she crushes you, not by saying no, but saying, oh, I would love to go with you. But Austin already asked me to the dance. She's like, Austin! That guy, I hate his handsomeness. Oh, he beat me to it. But you would have had the date and you just worked up the nerve earlier. You all know what it's like to keep your room really, really neat and tidy and you know what it's like to have a roommate that is a complete pig? They're unclean animals. And all of their funk gets onto your side of the room. You know the way it is. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh uh-uh. uh. Here's one for you. You know what it's like to work super hard all week long on that paper. You have cited your sources perfectly. Jessica Sherman and Kate Turabian all of a sudden became your fairy godmother and just looked over all of your formatting and it's, per- it's perfect. It's as if Michael DeFazio was whispering word studies in one ear and Beth DeFazio was speaking exegetical poetry in the other and this paper is perfect. That paper is perfect. You submit it on Canvas a day Early. Now, that's just fictitious now. Like, that uh, never happened. But you know what that's like? You submit it. Everything's perfect. And then Professor Quick Grader McGraderson doesn't get it in for eight weeks. When he finally grades it, there's a C plus and no comments. And you have no idea what you did wrong. Curse you, Chad Ragsdale. You know? Like, what happened? You know what it's like sometimes when you work so hard and you just don't see the fruit of your labor. Even Peter recognizes this. Master, we've worked hard all night long and we haven't caught anything. But if you tell me to cast my nets over the other side, I I guess I'll do it. But but Peter's recognizing he's not thinking spiritually like Jesus. He's thinking like, man, I've worked hard and you want more out of me? It didn't produce anything. There's no, there's no fruit of the labor. No fish today, Jesus. I guess if you say so. Why is it that our work seems toilsome, laborsome, bothersome, burdensome? It's frustrating and discouraging when you can't see what you do in the day to day, the mundane or the hard things that you do actually make a difference in the world. I wonder, what does this have to do with me going into ministry or getting a job or whatever? We, we just don't connect all of those dots. It's as if our work is cursed. It hasn't always been that way. Work was a joy at one time, a pleasure, a privilege. I mean, it's by the very foundations of the world. The very foundations of the world were, were set forth by God working, you remember? Because then on the seventh day, He rested and enjoyed. All of his work, he placed man in the, in the garden, the pinnacle of his creation. And what did he do? He gave them jobs, things to do, work. Not to feed themselves, not to survive, not to get a career or to stay out of their parents' basement. That's weird, they didn't have parents. I mean, God, but yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> not for any reason like that, but just because. Work is joyful, but then, just like our lives, sin enters in, twists things up, and it becomes a curse. Cursed be the ground that you work. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it, and all the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground. And so, work and die. That's the curse. Work was cursed and connected to survival, not enjoyment. But it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to live under the curse. I mean, I understand that the world, humanity, the earth, it it groans for the return of Jesus Christ, that, that we live in a broken, fallen world, but that doesn't mean that it's not redeemable. We don't have to work... It's not for a necessary survival mode or, or just to feed ourselves or just to make money or stay out of our parents' basement. Work is good. And like all facets of our life, when it's surrendered under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it is redeemable. And there could be many reasons that our work feels like a curse and it feels fruitless when we give forth a whole lot of labor and effort, but then it doesn't seem to produce. Maybe it's because our lazy flesh fights against the daily beckoning of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite Proverbs from proverbs 26 it says that a sluggard buries his hand in the dish and he's too lazy to bring it up to his mouth that's laziness when you put your hand down to eat some food and you can't even bring it back up to your mouth i'm just always happy when i find a cheeto and it's like oh hey how'd you get there you know like sweet you know those moments of laziness and maybe, the, maybe your lazy flesh just fights against the Holy Spirit when, when the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, get up, work, do something. You're going, and like the sluggard, we just turn over in our bed. You know what that's like. You've made the commitment, I'm getting up early tomorrow. Snooze, snooze, unplug, thrown out the window, in bed, forever. Maybe it's because you think procrastination is your personal spiritual gift. It's not. It's not. You've bought into the lie, I work best under pressure. That's because you only work under pressure. It's it's a lie, though. Proverbs tells us, consider the ant. Consider the aunt. She she doesn't wait till tomorrow to do her work. She works today while there's daylight. She works hard doing those things. Maybe it's your addictions that hinder your work. Have you ever said this? Just, I'll get started on that paper after one more episode. And then six seasons and a full beard later? You snap out of that coma. I had a guy in my life group a while back who told me that he just had to stop playing video games. Like he was addicted and he knew that he was addicted. Not by the hours that he was spending on there, but he said he woke up and his hands were in this position. And he wasn't kidding. He goes, I've got a problem. I'm going, yeah, you do. It's like we had to bend his fingers back straight. This is how you hold a pencil to take a test. Not like the Like... Yeah, he knew that he had a problem. Maybe it's your addictions that get in the way. Maybe you get easily distracted by other people. That when fun is happening, your whole, I mean, I'm telling you, plan your work and work your plan unless somebody else gets in the way and there's pizza. Hear me. Just because somebody is a lot of fun and they live on your dorm floor does not mean that their habits need to be your habits. That if they're tanking, If they're crashing and burning, that does not have to be you. They are good, godly people. I'm not judging them in in one sense, but you just don't need to be around them all the time. But there's a time to go into your room, close your door, and crank out your work. There is this building over there called the library. Distractors don't come into the library. They just don't. Do you know why most of your professors get up early in the morning? Because you're in bed and you won't distract us from our work, which is you, but we got prep to do for you. Just because they live on your floor doesn't mean that you have to give in to their time schedule and their bad time management skills. And if you don't know who that is on the floor, it's probably you. (laughs) Maybe you're a workaholic and you've distorted the Sabbath to the point that you're burning yourself out. Maybe you just give up too quickly. You're just like, I, I can't do it. And you get overwhelmed. And you just, you, if you would just move on a little bit farther, if you would just be patient, if you would just keep pushing yourself and be disciplined to the end, you would see that you would reap the harvest of the fruit of your labor. Just remember Proverbs 16. When you're fighting laziness, Proverbs 16 is the place to go. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and He will establish your plans. Plan your work and work your plan. God is in that process. In his heart, man plans his course, but the Lord establishes our our steps. We should never be so blind to think that the evil one just uses one or two tactics to draw us astray. The evil one is counting on the bad habits that we might be forming right now, that we're building up to render us useless in the kingdom. Your generation, I just read an article a few months ago of a guy that said that the millennial generation, he said, is the most useless useless generation born yet not so with you just because all of the the pollsters and and the people that pay attention to culture call you useless does not mean that you have to be useless you don't have to buy into that lie you can work hard like the generation before you and the generation before them because the lord blesses the plans and the fruit of your labor we work we simply work plan your work and work your plan. We often lose sight on how our daily work just the mundane in the heart feeds into the bigger picture of God's plan. It breaks my heart when some of the most gifted and talented students students that make me laugh, students that I have a whole lot of fun with here don't do any academic work or they turn in trash they're talented and gifted and they've been duped into thinking that their charming personality can overshadow a hard good solid work ethic so what are you to do well maybe it starts with this call to work and just to consider the phrase my dominant thought of plan your work and work your plan Maybe you've been skating around, uh, sort of skating by, planning your work um, or without planning your work, and it's finally caught up with you. Have you been there? There was a student that I was helping out, and I said, okay. I was giving him a plan of like, hey, here's the way I would approach the rest of your semester. And he's like, I don't know if that will work. I said, okay, well, then what's your plan? He finally just said, I don't have one, so this is it. Okay, good. Maybe you've just been skating around without a plan. I'm a very task-driven person. There's relationally driven people, and then there's task-driven people. I look at all of you, and I love you dearly, but that's by the Holy Spirit. I look at all of you and your work. Like, and if you're helping me accomplish my goal, great. You could be in my presence. <laughs> If you're a distractor, go away. The people closest to me, my wife knows she'll come in and she'll chit-chat and she's having her cup of coffee. She's very relationally driven. And she could tell, even with her, whenever I'm getting antsy in the office and I want to get back to work, and she just gets up and she's like, see ya, and she walks out. It's she's not mad at me, she just knows. It's like I, I know my husband and he just needs to get back to work. I'm very task driven. And so uh with that then I'm not very good with relationships all the time. And so people will come into my life and I'll cut I'll cut short this relationship here in order to get back to work. And some would argue, but wait, God wants you to be more relational. True. Maybe God sent that person to you in that moment because they desperately needed help or they needed to bless you. Like maybe God is orchestrating all of this. Yes, absolutely. God does want me to be more relational and you're very discerning with that. However, I would counter to that. If you are always off task because you give in to the moment, then you're not being very relational. Your relationships are short-sighted. Because you're actually saying, my community is what I need to be focused on. But what if your community is getting you off task? It's not the community's fault, it's your fault. It's your fault because you're short-sighting those relationships that are out there in the future that you're here preparing for. God has called you to ministry, so stop using your community as the excuse to not write the exegetical paper. Get it done. Because that's what God has called you to do. Because the more you pour into that task that's there, the more prepared you're going to be to teach the people in the community that you're going to be a part of maybe tomorrow on Wednesday night or the next day or in your future ministry. You just don't know, but prepare today. Plan your work and work your plan. I'm not saying throw off your community. Just don't let Satan get a foothold in it. Work your plan. Because it's the Lord that will establish your steps. And the steps that you take from chapel to the classroom to learn are the steps that will lead you to the library to study. These are the steps that will lead you to the graduation stage. And this will lead you to a church or an orphanage or a counseling center or a youth group center or the mission field or the pulpit which leads you to the doorsteps of the heart that needs to hear the Word of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so stay on task. Plan your work. And work your plan. Because it works. It's going to lead you to a heart, a heart that's that's stonewalled you forever. And no matter how hard you've been pushing and pushing and pushing, you haven't seen the fruit of your labor. And I'm telling you, it's in that moment your work will play, it will pay off. I promise you, in that moment, you will remember things from the classroom 15, 20 years later, and it will flow from your mouth like hermeneutical honey. And you're gonna say, where did that come from? It came from the Lord establishing your steps in this moment and you are doing the task at hand. We worry more about God's work than we do our work that He's given us. We worry more about, God, what are you doing with my life? What is your big plan for me? How are you going to work things out in my life? God, what's your will for, your, for my life? What's God's will for your life? Do your homework. Why worry about tomorrow? There's plenty of worry then. Why don't you worry about what God has put in front of you today? Because maybe that project, that plan, that thing that you're working on today will bless your tomorrow and people will know Jesus more because you did your work today. Plan your work. Work your plan. But Master, we've worked so hard all night long and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so. Do you hear submission in Peter's voice? He didn't even know Jesus all that well. But because you say so, I'll let down my nets. Work hard. Work hard. When you submit your daily tasks to the Lordship, Lordship of Christ, it will never, ever be cursed. He breaks the curse. For it's by grace that you've been saved, not through faith. This is not from yourself, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, but for you are God's handiwork. you're His workmanship, His artistry, His craftsmanship, you're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good things, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is your advanced preparation. this moment. He's planning good work for you. It might be later today, it might be tomorrow, it might be 20 years from now. (laughs) The same members of my family that have been pushing shovels for four, five, six generations, however far back it goes, is the same family that pushes Jesus Christ out of their life. As hard as they work building calluses on their hand, that's how hard they work to make sure that they have nothing to do with Jesus. And then my dad comes to Christ in a fireball way. And then I start going to Bible college and preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel with different members of the family. And they shut us out for years, for decades. Shut shut us out of the family stuff. And it hasn't been until recently, I'd say the past seven or eight years, that that the witty side of the family started coming around with my parents. My grandpa started coming over for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and my Uncle John and my aunt, uh, these these people. And five years ago, I I had this dream, and, and I still remember it like yesterday. And the Lord told me in that dream, when you go home for Thanksgiving, I want you to tell your uncle that you love him. Tell your Uncle John that you love him and tell him that I love him more. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. See that that won't work for me, because everything's harmonious in family right now. Nobody's fighting. There's no upset. The moment somebody mentions Jesus, there's it's just going to cause a riff. Uh, but I couldn't shake it, and I go and and the whole thing played out just like it was in my in my dream. I took him into a ba- back room and said, Uncle John, this is going to sound weird. I haven't been around him much over the past couple of decades. It's sound weird, and I told him the Lord. Sent me a dream, and I know it seems weird, but he told me to tell you that I, that I love you. And I, and I said, I really do love you. I miss you. I grew up with him. I love him. And that the Lord loves you more. You know what happened? He sighed. He started to cry a little bit. And he went out to his car, and he smoked a cigarette, and he drank a beer. And he came back in, and he didn't say a word about it. Nothing. It was extremely frustrating to do the work that God had called me to do, that he prepared me in advance to do, and to see zero fruit from that. I expected doves to fly down. I expected him to say, where's water? Why wait? You know, like, there was, there was none of that. So I went home, and between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I, I, I grabbed—I got a Bible, and I started highlighting favorite scriptures and tabbing them. He knows nothing of God's Word. I started writing notes, my own commentary in there, favorite stories, read this, read that, and I put it in the mail with a letter and said, "Hey, I didn't mean to freak you out, and anything, but I do love you, and the Lord loves you. Here's God's Word. Why don't you start reading it?" And Christmas time walks around or comes around, and I hadn't heard a word from him, and so I figured it went on the shelf, or, or, or he threw it away, or whatever. He walks in with that Bible and letter in hand. And he goes, "I need to." Talk And I thought, well, Jehovah Jireh, here it comes. The Lord (laughs) provides. And he sits down and we start having conversations. And he had read all those highlighted passages and he was asking me questions. He goes, there was one passage that, that you highlighted that was weird to me. And it was John chapter 11. And I didn't highlight the whole thing, the whole story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. I just highlighted the heading and I just wrote in there, this is one of my favorite stories, read this. But the heading says, Lazarus dies. And he goes, why is that one of your favorite stories? That's weird. And I go, did you read it? He goes, no, I didn't read it. I didn't want to read about some guy dying. I said, well, read it. And he reads it. Do you believe that that actually happened, he says? Yeah, I do. I do. And so with interruptions from his wife, who did not want any of this conversation to go on, and it didn't go too well, got to tell him about Lazarus' resurrection, and Jesus' resurrection, and our resurrection in him. And do you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Years later, I get a phone call from him and his son, who had been in and out of prison with heroin addictions and some violent rampages and stuff, happened to be in a rehab facility, out of prison, in a rehab facility in Joplin, Missouri, my cousin Travis, who I haven't seen in 15, 20 years. He calls me, will you go and talk to him and would you pray with him? Yeah, I could do that. And so I go, Travis and I catch up and we talk and I go again. He's got these addictions and he wants to start making a life in Joplin because St. Louis and Springfield, like all of his old, old habits and bad friends and everything is waiting there for him. I said, sure, I was going to connect him with some agencies that could get him some work and you know, he could just start getting back on his feet. We could help him. And then, do you know what I heard after that? Nothing. And he actually went back to jail for a while to finish out a sentence. And then when he got out, he called me then. He goes, hey, I didn't mean to leave you hanging, but I didn't have a phone. And he goes, I'm out, I'm trying to get clean, and what about that work? And it was the day that Lisa and I were going out of the country for our 20th wedding anniversary, and I said, I'll be back in a week. Just hold tight. Gave him some numbers to some shelters and stuff, like just hold tight. He had nowhere to go, and he overdosed in that week that we were out of town, and I had no idea. And then I go, and my uncle wants me to do the funeral was so the hardest funeral, and all of those concrete workers and landscapers and drunks and drug addicts all show up to the funeral. And I preached my heart out the gospel, hard, hardest I've ever prayed, hardest I've ever preached. And you know what happened? Nothing. And then seven months later, my grandpa gets sick. My, my uncle's dad, my dad's dad gets sick. from Sixty years of smoking and drinking will do that. And every, every organ in his body is you know, fighting against him at that time. And they call me and I go up there and I pray with my grandpa. And he had had a stroke and he doesn't know anything about Jesus. And my mom is there with me and, and I'm talking to him and he can't speak. And I'm sharing the gospel with him. My, my grandpa can't get all of his words out but he, he starts saying things like and I'm, and I'm telling him about God's love and he goes God, me, broken can't pray I, me, bad I, broken and it took him 20 minutes to say those words And I shared the gospel of God's love and how he's never too lost and never too dirty and never too broken. And I wrote him letters for weeks with scriptures and prayers and then he was gone and nothing. I did his funeral and all the same drunks and drug addicts and landscapers and concrete workers show up and I preach my heart out again and there's nothing. Why prepare work for me to do in advance and there will be no fruit for it? Next week, while you guys are enjoying spring break, Tuesday, we're burying my grandpa's ashes on some land where he's taken my whole family to deer hunt. And so we're going, and I'm going to preach again there for some family that couldn't make it, and my uncle will be there again. And I have no idea if Tuesday's going to be the day, but I am going to plan my work and work my plan until I see the fruit of my labor because I know that God is in this plan. And if I give up, If I quit pushing on the stone wall heart of my Uncle John, who's going to do the pushing? the work that you're doing here because every moment along the way of that story every segment along the way I'm recounting the things that I learned in Christ and the Bible and Old Testament history and Acts class and and apologetics and and just stuff that I had forgotten about so long ago and it all came about every moment every every hard paper that I was writing and every test that I was taking here and every ministry success and failure of the past 21 years of ministry that I've had the privilege of doing was preparing me in advance for the good work of of sharing the gospel with my Uncle John. I have not seen the fruit of my labor yet. But I plan my work and I work my plan and God will work through this plan. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good work and He's preparing these things in advance for you to do. So what's God's will for your life? To get up and go to class. Go. Go.